Welcome to episode one of Church Grammar. On this episode, we will talk with Dr. Tom Schreiner. He's a professor of New Testament and biblical interpretation at uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He's written a ton of books on Paul and has a biblical theology called The King and His Beauty and uh, is one of the most prolific New Testament scholars of the last Know, 30 years or so. And uh, we are going to talk today about a wide range of things. We talk about uh, Pauline scholarship. You know, he got his PhD in the early 80s, right around the time that the new perspective was starting to sort of make waves in academia into the 90s when it started making some more waves in the church. And uh, so we talk about that, what kind of how he's seen that happen, what he's learned from the new perspective, where he thinks there's some strengths there, even though he would not consider himself a new perspective scholar necessarily. Uh, we talk about parenting, you know, raising Christ, uh, kids to become Christians. All four of his kids have grown up to love the Lord. We talk about uh, his gluten allergy and uh, whether or not he's a hipster. Uh, we talk about uh, his favorite books on the book of Revelation, some of his favorite books uh, in the Old Testament that he learned from as he was doing his uh, full biblical theology. And there's just a ton of other things that we talk about in this episode. And it was a blast to talk to Tom. He is one of the most humble, kind men I've ever met and I've ever been around. I've been really fortunate to work with him on the Christian Standard Bible as he is the uh, chairman, the co-chairman of the translation committee. And um, if you want somebody to oversee your Bible translation, that is the guy you want to do it, a man who is both a premier scholar and also a good man and a good churchman who pastored for a long time, knows what churches need, uh, knows what lay people need. He's just, he's just the real deal, full package. This episode is brought to you by B&H Academic. You can find out about their offerings and newest releases at bhacademic.com. That's bhacademic.com. We're also presented by the Christian Standard Bible, an English translation that is faithful to the original languages without sacrificing clarity. You can go find out more about the CSB at csbible.com. And now, No Big Deal is going to take us to our conversation with Tom Schreiner. So I am here on the beautiful campus of Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, with one of my favorite people in the entire world, Tom Schreiner. You and I uh, have served together on the CSB team for about three years, Christian Standard Bible Translation. We have eaten Mexican food together probably more times than I can count right. uh, because you have celiac disease, which a lot of people probably don't know. Uh, which is an allergy to gluten, right? Right, right. And it's not because you're a cool hipster. It's because you uh, actually have a medical diagnosis, right? I also am a cool hipster. You are. That's yes. true. That's true. <laughs> if anybody's met you, <laughs> there's one thing I know about Tom Schreiner is that you're a cool hipster. Well, Tom, why don't you tell, uh, tell everybody just a little bit about your family, your kids, uh, all that good stuff. So I've been married to Diane for 43 years. Uh and an interesting fact about me, I became a believer through the witness of my wife, Diane. Wow, missionary uh, dating works every once it, in a while, it, huh? It does. <laughs> uh, when I was 17 years old, we got married four years later. We have uh, four kids. Uh, Daniel's 36, Patrick 34, John's 30, Anna's 27, and uh, 
We have uh, eight grandkids, one on the way. Any any day, really, October 31st, we'll have our ninth. So wow. So our, by the time this goes up, you should have your ninth grandchild. Yeah. So Another boy. Yeah. And all your kids uh, love Jesus? All, all of our kids are believers. They had times of uh, struggle, mm-hmm. and but yeah, by God's grace. Especially uh, Patrick. He's a, he's a bad egg. So <laughs> there's no doubt about that. We could make this whole program about Patrick. He but. would love it, too, wouldn't he? <laughs> Okay, so I have a five-year-old daughter and a two-year-old daughter, and I am terrified of them not loving Jesus. Now, on the one hand, I know that it's not in my control, but what are some tips that you would give to raising kids to do the best of your ability uh, within your means to be able to raise kids to love the Lord? Yeah, I mean, I think it's good. One of the first things to say is it's not in our control, and to to recognize that. I I think uh, love your wife. That's absolutely vital. If you and your wife have a great relationship, a good relationship, the kids see that. Yeah. Um, spend time with your kids. Uh, you know, apologize to your kids mm. when you sin against them. I think if kids see that you're real. And the other thing is, you know, we had three of our kids who either fought, fell away or weren't Christians, you know, until a little bit later in life is— um, we 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 love them, we, you know. When they're when they're when they were not following the Lord, and then when they were unbelievers, we we continued to love them, and uh, and at least uh, we we always had things to talk about with them, especially with the boys. I talk a lot about sports. Mm-hmm. We all love sports, and um, Anna was in athletics, and so we had other things to connect on. I think that's important when a when a child isn't following the Lord. That they know you love them mm-hmm. unconditionally, and you keep those lines of communication open. Yeah, that's really helpful. I remember seeing a video not long ago of uh, you and Patrick watching the uh, the Vikings improbable playoff win against the, the Saints. Minnesota yeah, miracle. Yeah, you guys were just going crazy. Well, yeah, I was in. Uh, I flew into Minnesota that next morning. I guess it was for the Bethlehem conference, and I flew in that early that next morning, and I got on the train, and it was like. That's the only thing that anybody could talk about. It was amazing. I mean, the whole city was just fixated on that catch. We were the the team of destiny until we weren't. Until you weren't. Until the next week when we lost 38 to 7 to the Eagles. (laughs) Seven days later is all it takes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. So let's talk a little bit about just uh, you becoming a scholar. Okay. So you became uh, a Christian at 17 Mm -hmm. and then uh, went on to do seminary and and, uh, doctoral work. So uh, tell me about that journey a little bit, just how you became a scholar, what got your interest in it, what did you want to be when you grew up, when did that change? When I was young, I wanted to be an NBA basketball player, which I was certainly deluded in that. I, was, <laughs> I wasn't even very good in high school. But when I became a believer, I basically felt called to ministry right away. I wanted to be a pastor. I didn't want to go to seminary. This is the early 70s. Mm-hmm. I I looked down upon kind of traditional seminary education, but I kind of got in a place where I thought, well, I, I have to do this. I didn't want to go. Um, I thought seminary was a, pretty much a waste of time. I mean, after all, I was 22. I thought I knew everything. Right. I went to seminary, and honestly, in my very first classes, I recognized I'd never done scholarly study of the Bible. I recognized instantly, I don't know anything. I've never... I've never studied hermeneutics. I haven't really studied the Old Testament. I don't know about systematics. I don't know about church history. So I instantly love seminary. 
um, because I was learning so much. As, uh, as I proceeded to study, I still wanted to be a pastor, but I was doing well in school. And then it just started coming into my mind, yeah, maybe, maybe God's calling me to teach. Hmm. So maybe halfway through my seminary education, I started thinking about doctoral programs. I went to Western Seminary in Portland, mm-hmm. did an MDiv, THM there. And I started thinking about teaching, and I applied several places, ended up at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena. When, when I finished at Fuller, I was open to pastoring and teaching. We had a one-year-old child, mm-hmm. so we decided— You're open to a paycheck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I said, I'm going to take whatever job I get. Yeah. And I got a teaching job at Azusa Pacific, and that's started my— teaching career. So when did you finish at Fuller? What year did you did you finish your doctorate? 1983. 1983. Yeah. So you and you did you do your your doctoral thesis on Pauline studies, something in Paul? Yeah, I did it on circumcision. So okay. I was I was looking at circumcision as a exemplar of what what are the differences between the testaments. Yeah. So what, how do we account for the newness of Paul's gospel? And um, yeah, I think it was a fine study. I never published it because I think it was still, I mean, I think I did fine, but I think it was unformed enough that I didn't think it was worthy of publication, mm-hmm. but I learned a ton. Yeah, so you so you were doing doctoral studies right about the time E.P. Sanders, Paul and Palestinian Judaism comes out, starts getting big. That was 77. Um, so what was it like to be a doctoral student? Did, did that hit very quickly, or did that sort of have a longer tail as far as how it influenced Pauline studies? Yeah, I would I would say that it wasn't yet an explosion. Mm-hmm. I mean, people were talking about it. I mean, my supervisor, Don Hegner, Don's a great mm-hmm. scholar, you know, he would talk about it, and but it wasn't yet an explosion in the evangelical scene because it was pretty much restricted to scholars. Right, right. So we were talking about it, but when once you went outside of church— or if I would tell my friends, because I wrote a book on the law yeah. in the early 90s, and i talk about the new perspective, they would say, what are you talking about? So was it, uh, was it really, I guess, N.T. Wright sort of popularizing some of it, or at least making it pastoral oh, level? Is exa- that what it just, yeah. Oh, that's exactly right. So that's in the mid to late 90s yeah. when that starts happening. Yeah, right, right, Wright's influence caused the new perspective to be a, a discussion in evangelicalism as a whole, and even lay people would start to come up and ask me about it mm. occasionally. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So, mm. so when that starts happening in the '90s, um, you did your you did your doctoral studies on Paul and the Law. You wrote a book on Paul and the Law. Um, how did that How did that explosion sort of impact you personally on on how you thought about Pauline studies, how you thought about the law? Um, you know, I think new perspective tends to get sometimes demonized a little too much, and people say anti rights a heretic and all these things. Um, but I think there's some good there that we can take from there, and I know that mm-hmm. you and I have talked about this before. So what are some things that you have found good in that school that have helped you think through some things, and what are some things that you would want to uh, you know, discard or push back against? Yeah, I, I, th- I think a lot of people are at the same place on this now, and that is they recognize the new perspective helped us to avoid a caricature of Judaism, yeah. especially Sanders. Uh, I think it's, well, the way many evangelicals read the Bible, they read it as if the Pharisees were almost subhuman. Right, right. <laughs> and, and, and we have nothing to do with people like that, and they were so legalistic and so uh, oriented towards minutiae. Who could, who could even relate to that? Mm-hmm. So I, I think that was helpful. I think the new perspective is also helpful in reminding us 
that the Jew-Gentile issue is huge mm. in the New Testament. The inclusion of the Gentiles, that was, that's a, that was a radical shift mm -hmm. in the New Testament, and I think the new perspective reminded us of that. <clears throat> I, th I think Wright is also helpful in reminding us that God is interested in the transformation of people's lives. Yeah. I would not say justified on the basis of good works, but I— but I, I agree with him significantly in the sense that I think good works are necessary for final justification. So mm -hmm. I would tweak that a little bit, but I, but I think that's helpful. And I, I actually think Wright's basically right on the exile as well. I like how N.T. Wright thinks in terms of a big picture. Yeah, he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't just look at individual texts. Of course, we all have to do that. But but he 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 thinks deductively, yeah. and a lot of New Testament scholars don't do that, which is one reason he's had such an influence. Of course, he's extraordinarily gifted. Mm -hmm. He can write scholarly books. He can write popular books. He's a great speaker. Yeah. Um, and and a push another pushback I'd have though is I think. I would say over against some new perspective adherents that the reformers essentially got it right. I think there is a polemic against works righteousness in Scripture. I I do believe in the imputation of Christ's righteousness. So I th I don't I don't think we want to let go of those classic reform teachings. Mm -hmm. So I think we can learn from the new perspective. And I think even some new perspectivists are now saying, yeah, there's a lot of truth in what the reformers said. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, Michael Bird, my doctoral supervisor, you know, friend of both of ours, is one person who's done a great job of trying to figure out how do I find the best of both worlds and try to paint a bigger picture or a more clear picture of Paul. Yeah, I think Michael has been helpful in that regard. So so you did, I mean, you've written a ton on Paul. That was that was primarily your work in the 90s into the early 2000s. You did a ton of stuff on Paul. And you wrote, um, you know, the book on Pauline theology, Apostle of God's Glory in Christ. Uh, would you, how would you, would you still agree basically with the thesis of that, that that's sort of the crux of Paul's theology? Or, or what are your thoughts on that as far as how do we, how do we find the center of Paul's theology or can we? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I've sent in a revision to IVP of that book. So I've just worked through it recently. Again, I didn't change anything in that book substantially because mm -hmm. that's kind of a big picture. I do not argue that God's glory is the central theme in Paul. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think we really know what the central theme is, yeah. I would argue. But I do, what, I'm, what I argue instead is it's foundational. and yeah. I, that, So that's a distinction. Mm -hmm. uh, probably if you want to talk about a theme, maybe the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I'm arguing what, what is it all aiming towards? It's aiming towards God's glory. And, the, and, and in one way, I think it's kind of obvious if you read the text. But that's one reason I wanted to write about it, because I didn't see a lot of people saying that mm -hmm. specifically. So I think it was just a reminder, what is what is the story Paul tells? What's the salvation that Paul relates all about? Mm -hmm. why, why does God save? Why does he judge? Well, it's ultimately for his glory. But that to say that that is the foundation is not the same thing as saying that's the theme. Mm -hmm. That, or that's the center. Okay, so how, how would you distinguish those two things then? Well, I think this, the, the center is what's the main storyline he tells. 
What mm-hmm. what what theme does he talk about the most? And I I don't I don't see how anybody could say it was God's glory. <laughs> right. I think that's clearly not true. That's what he's aiming towards. So that's the the foundation or basis or goal. You could say it different ways. Mm-hmm. But that's why I'd say if I were to pick one, I'm I'm not into picking one center. But if yeah. I were to pick one, I I think I'd pick it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ crucified and risen, reclaiming the world Mm -hmm. um, for his glory. Yeah, that's good. Uh, So you've been in Pauline studies now for 40 years, 35, 40 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, What would you say is the most influential book or handful of books that have been written in the last 40 years on Pauline studies? Well, you'd certainly have to pick E.P. Sanders. Paul Mm -hmm. and Palestinian Judaism has had an enormous impact. Um. I don't know if it's his book, but certainly N.T. Wright's book, uh, Work, Yeah. maybe Paul and the Faithfulness of God, but he was already influencing Pauline studies before he wrote that book. But I, that's an enormously influential book. A recent book I think of that I think is having a major impact is Paul and the Gift by mm-hmm. Barclay. Yeah, I've heard that about a hundred times. Yeah, have how you, good that have book you read is. it? Yet? I have a copy, but haven't read oh, it yet. You've got, I, just, I keep hearing that though. Yeah, we just worked through it in our New Testament colloquium. We had a great time mm-hmm. uh, with that book. Um, and what do you think that book is doing? That's I mean, it, uh, I've heard it's pushing back a little bit on some of the new perspective stuff. Um, but I, but what do you what do you think is the most important thing about it? I, I think I think where Barclay is so helpful is he helps us see that simply to say that Judaism believed in grace is is too vague of a statement. Hmm. It's too in that sense, it's too simplistic. So he gives us a typology for saying there are different conceptions of grace. There are mm-hmm. different conceptions of of the gift in Judaism, and we, we, we need to recognize them. So they all believed in grace, but they they define that grace in, in different ways. So if, say Philo over against the wisdom of Solomon or or uh, or Hoyadot, the, the Qumran hymns. Mm-hmm. So we look back at Sanders and see Sanders basically said, you know, God, you enter into God's covenant by grace, you stand by works. And I think Barclay comes in and says, we need to be more specific, Mm -hmm. and we need to define what we're talking about when we're talking about grace. And I think... I think he's got a volume two coming. Oh wow, I didn't know that. Uh, people are going to be talking about Barclay for years to come, and I think it's I think it's going to reshape the discussion. Mm. So, what else? What other books? You think of any other ones that have really been influential? Maybe something that's been super influential on you personally, even if maybe it's not the most popular or most influential. Um, you know, I was I was really helped as a young student. I don't think he's read so much anymore by Ritterboss. Oh yeah, I think Ritterboss's book on Paul is excellent. I mean, it's not easy to read. When I was at Fuller, Ralph Martin, I sat in on Ralph Martin's uh, Pauline theology class, and it was great. And I'll never forget how he introduced Ritterboss. He said, "This is a very good book," but he said the Dutch still clings to it <laughs> like barnacles. <laughs> So Ritterboss is a difficult book to read, but um, the theology in that book is rich and deep and profound. Really worth and, chewing on. And and I myself have a redemptive historical approach in my work. I'm very indebted clearly to Ritterboss and Ladd, and then you could say Gerhardus Voss. I mean, I'm in mm-hmm. that I'm in that tradition. I think another book in Pauline studies that's very important is uh, Dunn's theology of Paul. Yeah. 
I, you know, I don't always agree with Dunn, but I think his polling theology is excellent. And I think Dunn is a great writer. He's, he's easy to understand, he, and he's conversant with scholarship, and uh, I, I enjoyed that book uh, tremendously. Yeah, I, uh, I'm doing my doctoral studies on the Trinity and the Book of Revelation, and uh, I was going through, kind of starting out, saying, okay, who is sort of on one side of the fence, who's on the other, about Jesus' divinity and revelation and his exalted status and all those kind of things. And I wasn't sure where Dunn was going to be. I thought, who knows, he may be a lot in disagreement with me. He may agree with me. I don't know. And I just remember in that his little New Testament theology book, he says, you can't downplay the divinity of Jesus in Revelation. So I'm like, hey, even Dunn agrees with me on how high you know yeah, the Christology yeah. is of uh, in Revelation. I thought that was really, really interesting to read him, to see him read that. And even to see, uh, much like yourself, he's a type that it seems like he's willing to say, I was wrong about this in the past, or I needed to tweak this, or I really appreciate yeah, how this person yeah. interacted with me on this. I've always found that super helpful. And you um, you're really good at that too, honestly. You 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 model humility and scholarship about as well as anybody I know. Um, and so you had your second Romans commentary come out. Speaking of that, and there was a yeah. couple things in there that you tweaked. What are some things that you that you have changed your mind on since? What was the first one? Ninety eight. Yeah. 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 You know, when I wrote the second edition, I I revisited basically everything. Yeah. I did a I did a thorough revision. You know, twenty major at least twenty. I didn't read them all. But I, I read 20 major commentaries, and there's more than that that have come out. It's amazing. <laughs> and the monographs and the articles, yeah. it's, it's, it's just stunning. So, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm the kind of person, I think it's a strength and a weakness. Mm. You know, every strength is a weakness. I'm the kind of person that I just revisit things. Yeah. <laughs> That's just how I'm wired. And sometimes I wish I weren't that, way, <laughs> you know. But especially, you know, like I said, my polling theology is basically the same because it's more big picture. Yeah. But especially when I start getting into details, I just individual texts, I, they just raise questions for me. So I reshaped uh, my understanding of righteousness of God, hmm. to, which Mike Bird doesn't like. By yeah, the he way. was very upset about he that. Likes, yeah. He likes 1.0 and not 2.0. Mm-hmm. So... But honestly, I don't feel like it changed my theology a lot because I've always believed the forensic is the basis of the transformative. And Mike, I know you're probably not listening to this, but I still believe in the transformative grace of God. <laughs> I'm going to make sure he listens to it. Yeah, I just don't, I just don't see it in the phrase righteousness of God. Mm-hmm. But I do believe, you know, in Romans 6, that as believers were transformed— I see Romans 2, 14, and 15. That's a very famous text. Look mm-hmm. it up if you don't remember what's in it, listeners. But I see that is now talking about Christians mm-hmm. and not talking about natural law. Uh, Simon Gathercole, Ardell Canada, helped convince me of that. Mm. Um, that's Wright's view as well. Yeah, I, I, think I think that fits with Romans 2 as a whole more. Um, I, I tweaked my view of Romans 5, 12 through 14. I, Will Timmons' monograph on Romans 7 reshaped how I was thinking of that chapter, mm-hmm. which I recommend that book. Unfortunately, it's $99. <laughs> it's one of those, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But Wait for the paperback. That, that's, a, that's a fascinating uh, book as well. And then, honestly, just... Um, a lot of little small changes all throughout mm-hmm. where I changed my mind. 
my my first edition, I argued that namas always almost always referred to Mosaic law. Mm-hmm. But in the second edition, I argue that in a number of passages, it means principle or rule. Hmm. So, so if if you own the first edition of the Romans commentary, you might as well buy the second one because there's enough difference to to make it worth it, right? And if you want to know what Tom thinks now, absolutely, buy the second one. Buy buy it. Our, my family will be grateful. <laughs> so. Yeah, because it's funny whenever second editions come out, you always. You know, I look at it and I go, did they change my, is it just footnotes? Is it, or is it, you know, there's some, something worth actually buying a second copy. But in your case, yours are always worth buying the second copy because you're humble enough to, to change your view. It was a, it's a, it really is. I'm not making this up. It's a thorough revision. Yeah, that's good. And yeah. the cover is better too. I like yeah, the new cover. I, I, yeah. I love the new that's cover. That's a good update. It's beautiful. I mean, it's great working with Baker. Baker's been fantastic. Yeah. And you, did you, uh, did you do your biblical theology with him as well? Yeah. The King and his my beauty? New Testament. Yes. The, yeah. Oh, the the King and His Beauty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And and my New Testament theology mm-hmm. I've done with Baker. So I did the Paul book with IVP. Mm-hmm. Did my Galatians commentary with Zondervan. So done some stuff with B and H. B and H. Yep. Yep. Done some our baptism Lord's Supper book, my spiritual gifts book. Yeah. Which is a little more semi popular. You're an equal opportunity. Uh, author, huh? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, okay, let's let's move to talking about that biblical theology a little bit. So you're a New Testament scholar. You've been a New Testament scholar for a long time, and then you write a full biblical theology. Uh, I assume that you recognize that you can't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament, but walk me through sort of how, what does that look like for you to go from doing all this New Testament work to doing this massive Old Testament, New Testament, full theology that you did? Yeah, you know, I've always had an interest in how the whole Bible fits together. One reason I like reading and NT Wright, and um, when I was did my THM at Western Seminary, I focused on Old Testament and on Hebrew. So the, I'm not claiming, not for an instant, that I'm an Old Testament scholar. I mean, there's no way you can keep up. Yeah, there's just so much scholarship out there. But I wanted to write. And this is, I'd say, it's a scholarly book, but not a technical book. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not writing a technical Old Testament theology. I was trying to write a, a, a the kind of, I shouldn't say Old Testament theology, biblical theology. Yeah. I'm, I was trying to write a book that would be for pastors, lay people, students. And um, so I did read a lot in Old Testament scholarship. I read a lot of Old Testament theologies and, and then on individual books. And honestly, to me, almost the, the most fun part of writing for me is when I'm reading all this, I'm learning so much. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking, man, I, th- this stuff is great. And, you know, I tried to put some of it in the book to communicate what I learned in, in putting the whole Bible together. Mm-hmm. But I'm the first to say, I stuck my big toe into the water. Mm-hmm. There's just so much more. Who did you find most helpful of Old Testament scholars that sort of helped shape how that book came out? You know, this is almost surprising, but my favorite Old Testament theology is that little theology by Stephen Dempster. Uh, Dominion and Dynasty. Dominion and mm-hmm. Dynasty. It is short, but Stephen is just a profound thinker. Mm-hmm. And... He says in short compass so much. So I, he is my favorite by far. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like I like Paul House. Paul is good. I mean, I learned from Brueggemann yeah. and uh, Von Rod and Ike wrote. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of good stuff out there. Uh, Waltke, you know, Waltke's Old Testament theology was helpful. Um, it's, it's just amazing 
what, what I've experienced, no matter what research I'm doing, whether I'm doing First Peter, Galatians, it's amazing when you start reading the monographs. Maybe I don't even agree with the thesis, but almost every book I read, uh, I, the, I learn. Yeah. And some of them I learn a ton. Yeah, that's really that's really helpful. When I did a Old yeah. Testament theology class in seminary, we had to read von Rod and all the ones you, basically all the ones you just named. We read and we read a ton of articles, and I kept coming back to Dempster, just going, "Man, this one is so good." We got to pick which one we reviewed, and I was like, "I want to review this one because I want to read the rest of it." You know, read like a chapter of each one, figure out which one you're going to like. And he's yeah, not only is his scholarship so good, but he's just so he's a clear writer. He's yeah. really helpful, and he he packed a lot of punch into that book's probably 250 pages, yeah. maybe. Yeah. And just packed it in there. Yeah. Um, so, so who has been? Uh, who are some of the people that you like to read now? Who are some of your favorite newer authors that you know people may have heard of or may know about, but maybe in the last five to ten years have been scholars that you've really enjoyed uh, interacting with? Well, I mean, when you say newer scholars, I really like Barclay. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything I've read by Barclay has been very helpful. I think as a younger scholar, I think Simon Gathercole yeah. is excellent and outstanding. I've been, I enjoyed reading Matt Novenson's work on Messiah. That's a newer work. I think of a younger, a younger author. Um, I'm trying to think of other people who are young uh, as as scholars, my mind. Yeah, young is relative, I guess, isn't it? But <laughs> yeah, I mean those those are the three that come to my mind immediately. Um, yeah, West Hills, Paul and the Trinity. Really yeah, I, 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 I thought West's yeah. book was really excellent and outstanding. You know, I, 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 when you ask me a question like that, I do a lot of reading of monographs. Mm-hmm. So I read like one book by a person. Uh, when, I, when I was working on Hebrews, I thought Brian Small's book on characterization in Hebrews was, was excellent, uh, for example. But, the, but I'm not necessarily reading lots of works by a yeah. particular person. Yeah. I'm kind of more pursuing my, my research interests. Mm-hmm. So, and, and you just did, uh, you just released something on Revelation uh, and as an expository commentary. Yeah. Um, you've been digging a lot in Revelation. Uh, so what are some of the, uh, what are some of the ones you've really enjoyed from that you've been doing in your recent study of Revelation? I mean, I, I, my, my favorite book on Revelation is the little book by Richard Bauckham mm-hmm. on the theology of Revelation. Speaking of packing a lot into a small book. Yeah. <laughs> we, we also went through that in New Testament colloquium, and, you know, and I led it that semester. That was some years ago now, but I think that book is outstanding. And then then the longer book, what's that called? You're doing Revelation, The Climax of Prophecy or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I, with the essays that, in it. That's an outstanding book as well. Um, in terms of commentaries, I suppose I'm closest to Greg Beale. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is a massive... <laughs> Well, there's a shorter that's only 400 and something pages, you know. It's it's actually 550. Is it 550, man? Yeah, that's the short one. (laughs) But Beale's work is great. I think uh, Grant Osborne is a really clear Mm -hmm. um, exposition of Revelation. I think for background, David Ani's very good uh, as well. It's amazing how many good commentaries there are on Revelation. Very accessible to students. Robert Mounts, George Ladd. Beasley Murray. Mm-hmm. You know, the first commentary I ever read on Revelation is Leon Morris in the Tyndale series. Yeah. And I think that's an excellent mm-hmm. little commentary. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I've, I've found, yeah, in my study has definitely been Beale is who I tend to like the most as far as just when I'm, when I'm looking, especially Old Testament type stuff. He's so good with John's use of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. 
But Ani, yeah, he's, I mean, you can just dig through his backgrounds and footnotes forever. Yeah. He's just, he digs so much into the backgrounds. I haven't seen anybody do anything close to that. Yeah, and he did it in three volumes. Yeah. So. Another, and I didn't think of this, another very good commentary that's just out in Revelation uh, is by Kester now. Yeah. In the Anchor Bible. Oh, yeah. That, that's an excellent. Yeah. And he's got the little more accessible one, the uh, the end of all things. I, I haven't seen Revelation that. and the end of all things. I that's mean, a I've, good little smaller yeah. version of it. Yeah. So yeah. his commentary is, yeah, it covers a lot as well. Very yeah. clear. Yeah. Very, another big one. Yeah. Another big one to chew on. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about um, just where where do you see your your career going for the next 10 years? What other things are you wanting to do, wanting to dig into? What are some things that are coming that you're allowed to talk about? Uh, what, what's some of the future of, of Tom Schreiner's scholarship? Well, I mean, I'm 65 this year, so I'm not doing much prophesying about my future. <laughs> you know, if my health holds up, I'd like to teach at least till I'm 70. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not saying I want to des- necessarily stop then, but we'll see. See if I'm making any sense <laughs> as I get near 70. Will your wife help you uh, realize if you're not making sense? Yeah. Your students, somebody yeah. will help you do that, right? And I hope others will too, <laughs> yeah. You can, you can tell me, Brandon. Okay, I'll, so, let, I'll let you know. But um, so right right now, um, I know you're in in this series as well and working on this series. I'm Right now I'm working on revising 1st, 2nd Peter and Jude. Mm-hmm. And again, that's been really exciting. I've loved I've – loved, uh, Looking at some of the stuff, you know, um, we don't want to get too much into details. Yeah, but, we got to keep it a little quiet. Yeah. But I, but I've been, um, I've been really helped by some of the feminist uh, commentary on First Peter three. Go on on the on the women. Just, uh, just I, th- what what has struck me, and I think has been helpful is because so I'm, I'm sort of thinking of this in terms of, you know, the abuse question that's really c- yeah. come center stage. And does Peter, does Peter say that a wife should submit to a husband if he's abusing? Hmm. And some people, I think, have mistakenly said yes. Right. But one of the interesting things is Plutarch says, who was a Greco-Roman writer, mm-hmm. you know, around the time of the New Testament, he says a wife should in all things follow the religion of her husband and and not have friends apart from her husband. But Peter doesn't agree with that. Yeah. Peter 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 says the wife's loyalty is to her lord. I think we read it from our cultural background and we see we see an emphasis on submission which of course is there. Sure. But Peter sees also that the the wives live in a radical way, and I and I also think Peter is writing, and this is where the feminist scholars have helped me some. I think Peter is writing, and and I think it relates to slaves as well. That he calls upon them to submit in instances where they have no choice, hmm. and of course we'd have to work this out hermeneutically, but I think. For example, if there's an abuse situation and you have a choice, you should get out of there. Yeah. But we have to recognize, in many cases in the ancient world, there wasn't a choice. Yeah. You couldn't get out of there. If you were a slave or a woman, there was, there was no choice available to you. Yeah, telling a slave to leave would be saying, go be homeless and starve to death. Yeah. Or, or, or maybe be killed. Right, yeah. Right? I mean, that, that's not an easy thing to say. Mm-hmm. So, um, so at least when we appropriate that text, 
we have to recognize that culture was different from ours. I'm not taking away from what Peter's saying at all. Sure. But on the other hand, we can't just replicate the culture of the first century in interpreting that text. And and I th- now, not all feminist scholars agree. I mean, there are feminist scholars who read Peter and say he's an oppressor. Right. And so, but I'm I'm not I'm not agreeing with that stream. Yeah. yeah. Um, so this is a loaded question. Speaking of all this, yeah. um, where do you think? What do you think we've gotten right? about complementarian type of these type of issues, the husband and wife type of issues, um, especially over the last 30 years or so. And where do you think we've had some pretty significant blind spots that are starting to be opened up now? So you've talked a little bit about even First Peter 3, but uh, what are some things you've written on this? You've written a book on First Timothy uh, with Andreas Kostenberger. What are some things that you've seen or even that have changed in your opinion over the years of, of, of how that's all been handled? Yeah, I mean, I think the essential theology is right and, and correct uh, of that the the man is uh, the head of the wife means a man has primary leadership in the home and i would argue in the church as well that first timothy 2 is saying the eldership is reserved uh to men i think that's that is correct i suppose so i mean i've argued that in some detail i mean what what does that look like that that's where I think we have to we have to continue to think as cultures change, times change. I think some men can and women too, I suppose, could read read those commands in very rigid ways, mm-hmm. and in in ways where the husband's leadership is almost militaristic. And right. you you could read that as if there were not mutuality. I think the fundamental reality in a marriage relationship is mutuality. Mm. Every good marriage I've ever seen, the focus is on mutuality. That doesn't mean that there's not a primary leadership of the husband, but if you really, if, if, if complementarians really pound on that, I think it can be distorted out there. And, and the same thing in the church. I think, yes, the eldership is reserved to men, but I think I don't want to write the Mishnah, but I think there are contexts. I wouldn't say preaching on Sunday morning, personally. Some people would. But I would say there are contexts in which I think a woman can address both males and females. Mm-hmm. I think that's in the New Testament. I mean, women prophesying. Yeah, you have to do something w- with that. Women don't praying. You? Yeah. So in our church, all along, we've had women pray and read scripture in our services, we've even had people think come to us and think we are liberal mm. because of that, uh, which is crazy, right? <laughs> if they've listened to any of the sermons or yeah, read any right. books. But, but I think we have to continue to think, what, how, how do we work this out? What does yeah. this look like? Yeah, I think uh, my wife kind of grew up in that sort of a church culture, the very strict, rigid that you're kind of talking about. And we've been married seven years, and I still on occasion have to say, babe, you have a voice. You're allowed to tell me if you disagree with me. You know, she she's a very strong woman and has very strong opinions and is very wise and loves Jesus more and better than I do. But there are times where I'll ask her opinion, and she says, well, whatever you, know, whatever you think, I'm good with. And I say, that's not what I'm—I'm I'm not asking you if you're good with what I think. I'm asking what you think. And she was raised in a church culture that was so the opposite of that. And even uh, pastoring at our church, and you know you were a pastor for a long time, still an elder at a church. Uh, we have women in our church who are—you know, they just say, I, I wish it wasn't so weird for a woman to 
read, uh, do a scripture reading, a five-minute scripture reading, or to pray in a mixed group. You know, that, that feels so oppressive and weird to them because of the church culture they grew up in. So I can't agree with you enough, even from my own context, just how much important it is for us to make sure that we don't get too rigid and that we don't um, send signals that we're even not meaning to send. Yeah, and I, <clears throat> I'm just so happy that in our church now for years we've had w- women pray, read scripture. Yeah. Uh, I, I, uh, yeah, not that we don't have room for growth. Yeah, my wife uh, is a very strong person. Mm-hmm. Has, she she probably has stronger opinions than I do, mm-hmm. and uh, I say to people, I love that. Yeah, I I want it. She she's in a in the best sense of the world word. She's spicy <laughs> and strong. You know, as I always say, I like I like that most of the time. Yeah, that's right. You know, I'm a sinner too, but she's. I, it's been so fun to marry someone with a lot of vim and yeah. vigor and and strength, and that's not unbiblical. Right. <laughs> well, and in some ways, just like where you, you said, you know, I mean, your your wife led you to faith. Yeah. I mean, my wife, I have learned more about scripture from her and how, what it actually looks like in everyday life from her than I have from any of my seminary classes or doctoral classes. Not that I've not had good seminary professors who have talked about how it works out in application, but you know, when you live with somebody who loves the Lord, loves God's word, and is really strong in her thoughts and opinions, that's really good. It's good to have that challenge and good to have that accountability. And uh, it's, I mean, my wife, it's, you know, the more that she comes out of her, I can only imagine in 10 years how much more awesome she's going to be as she continues to to work some of that stuff out. But she probably is tired of me talking about her at this point if she's even listening. So, um, so, uh, so you're working on um, first, second, Peter and Jude. Kind of a book that would fit with the new new studies of biblical theology mm-hmm. series. I'm not saying it's going to be in that series, but that kind of book. Yeah. I'd like to write a book like that on Revelation, which is sort of an accessible theology for the pastor and student. I, I, I would like to write that first and then and then write a commentary. I love—you're working on Revelation. I love Revelation. I'm a little bit uh, intimidated by it. Yeah, I have you in, should be, right? Yeah, I have in my office right now all the monographs and commentaries— mm-hmm. And I've got like four shelves full, and that's not even articles. That's not even close, yeah. <laughs> that's and I'm right. like, I'm, of course, I can't, you can't read everything anymore. Yeah. If you did, you'd never, you'd never write anything. There's, there's so much written. And as you know, if you read commentaries, they tend after a while to start saying the same thing. Yeah, you can, you can find the ones that everybody else is already footnoting. Yeah. That's what I've tried to, try to do is I've got probably 12 commentaries on my shelf, and those are, more or less the 12 that everybody's already talking about. So yeah. I know that I can always rely on those and sort of go out from there. Yeah. Uh, some of the ones that we mentioned. Yeah. But yeah, Revelation is just, uh, you know, what's that? Is it Chesterton has that quote that he says, there's nothing, there's no weirder beast than the interpreter of Revelation. There are weird yeah. beasts in Revelation, yeah. but none yeah, weirder John, than the John saw many strange monsters and visions, but none is so strange as any of his commentators. <laughs> right. I'd lo- I love that. And Chesterton, only, only, in only ways that he can say that. Yeah, that, yeah, that's how I started my commentary on Revelation with that quote. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah, because I love it. So it's, now I can't use that as an intro. <laughs> to anything that I do. You can do or it. Or I'll footnote you, yeah. and then people will go back no, to your work, no, and it'll all work we can out. All, we, we all borrow from each other. We're like the scribes and the Pharisees. <laughs> that's right. So. That's what we're all here for. <laughs> well, Tom, thank you so much for hopping on today. I appreciate you doing it. You've been uh, such a, a kind person to me, and you've done our Word Matters podcast that I do as well. I don't know how many times, three, four times already. I always enjoy talking to you, my friend. Well, Brandon, it's, it's great being together with you.